1: Fellow students, if you would turn to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, we're going to uh, finish the second chapter and then begin uh, the third chapter uh, today. So we're going to pick it up at Galatians 2, 16, and let me see if I can get through the code here uh, on my computer. Uh, Rob's going to give you uh, just a quick uh, look at the map of Paul's first missionary journey. The context within which this book was written was a look back at Paul's time frame in the Galatian region. He had spent a number of years from 44 to 46, 47 AD planting a number of churches in four different cities in this region of Galatia. He spent about three or four years there, and then he went back to the city of Antioch in Syria, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. After he had went back to Antioch, Jews from Jerusalem came to these four churches in the Galatian regions and told them that Paul was a liar. They said that Paul had told them that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, But these Judaizers said that faith was not enough to be saved and go to heaven. You had to add something to that faith in order to get into heaven. And that faith was your own good works. So you had to have faith plus your own good works in addition to what Christ had done on the cross for your sins. They accused Paul to the the Galatian churches of being not a, a legitimate apostle and therefore his gospel teaching was not legitimate either. It wasn't from God, it was just a human opinion. So Paul spends the first two chapters of this book, there are six chapters in Galatians, he spends the first two chapters defending his apostleship and the legitimacy of the gospel he preached. So he reviews his life history, as you recall last week, he recounts that Jesus Christ changed his life from an adversary into an advocate, from a murderer to a missionary, and Jesus Christ called him to preach this gospel. He documents that the source of the gospel he brought to the Galatian churches was revelation, not just human speculation. And furthermore, he says, look, the teaching that I brought you, the gospel message is right in alignment with the gospel message the 12 apostles have been preaching as well. So in this part of the letter we're going to pick up today, he describes how the central problem of human existence is how sinful man and holy god can have a relationship and he's going to talk about that because the false teachers the judaizers said that your relationship with god is dependent on what you do it's dependent on human achievement paul says no your relationship with god is based only on your believing what god has already done for you through jesus christ it depends on divine achievement so let's pick up the crux of this argument in chapter 2, verse 16. This is Paul's definition, if you will, of the gospel uh, through the, the eyesight of justification, which is the core uh, central principle of that. Chapter 2, 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man or a woman is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now, we've talked in this class a number of times, when when the Bible repeats something more than once, what can you conclude? It would be important. Paul says here twice, no one's justified by the works of the law. He uses the word justified three times. So you would conclude that it's rather central doctrine. Here's Here's the key principle. God declares us right in His sight when we believe and receive Jesus' payment for our sins. God declares us right, or righteous, in His sight when we believe and receive Jesus' payment for our sin. This issue is really called justification, and it's the core issue of Christianity. Of course, the central question of life is how sinful people and a holy God can have a relationship, and that is through and only through the doctrine of justification. Martin Luther called this doctrine of justification the cornerstone of Christianity. J.I. Packer, Anglican theologian, said that any church that has lapsed from justification by faith can scarcely be called a Christian church. So exactly what is justification and how does that fit into the gospel message of salvation? Interesting question. Have you ever contemplated or just thought about how amazing it is that you and I can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe? That's better than any drugs I ever took. I'm serious. People are looking for what you have. It is incredible to think about. We, as fallen people, can have a relationship with the God of the universe. A personal relationship. Amazing. The Bible says that God created people because He wanted to have a relationship with them. As you know, our sin has separated us from God. And we have rebelled against God and we've actually declared war on God. We've ignored His word, disobeyed His will. Question. How many of you have ever been called to jury duty? How many of you have actually ever shown up and uh, sat on a jury panel in a courtroom? Interesting experience. Every day, there are courtroom trials across the country, across uh, the free world, where guilt or innocence is a matter of of debate. In some cases, being found innocent or guilty can, can mean the difference between going free or being sentenced to life in prison. Now, in God's court of law, we are the defendants. We're the ones on trial. And there's no debate in God's court of law about whether we're guilt or innocent, is there? The entire human race is guilty of crimes against the judge himself. The just penalty for those crimes is eternity in prison called hell. However, God, our judge, is not only perfectly just, the judge we serve is also full of grace and mercy. Because God loves guilty sinners, He made the first move to restore our broken relationship with Him. And of course, for that to happen, our crimes against Him have to be dealt with. The penalty for our law-breaking has to be paid for justice to be done. You know, in a murder trial... Uh, You will never hear a just judge say this. Uh, We have a murder trial here. Even though the murder is in fact guilty, proven, and even though a perfectly innocent person was killed, proven, I've decided just to forget about it and let's move on. You would never hear a just judge say that. Now, God is a just judge, so we simply can't take our sin and say, let's just pretend it didn't happen. That would be unjust. Our just God made sure the penalty for our sin was paid for. But not by us. By someone else. By Jesus. That way justice could be done and the guilty could go free. And everyone in this room is guilty. And every one of you who know Jesus as Savior has gone free. You have not paid for your own sin. We are Amazingly saved by His grace. So God, then, having done all this, calls each one of us to accept Christ's payment for our sins. You know, if someone wants to give you a... Have you received a birthday gift? Ever received a Christmas gift? How many of you refused it? Just said, nope. That envelope that's got the crinkle in it, that's got green when you hold it up to a light. Nope, I don't want it. Nobody refuses those gifts. God gives you and I the ability to accept or reject his gift of forgiveness but each person has to choose whether to reject it or receive it. Jesus said to Nicodemus and he says to each one of us John 3:16 Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and that belief is a choice. When we trust in Christ to forgive our sins of course we turn away from sin and we turn to God And then God responds to our faith and declares that, in fact, our sins are forgiven and we are right in our relationship with Him. That legal declaration from God the judge that we are in a right relationship with Him and that our sins are forgiven and that we are not guilty and that we are not going to be punished for breaking His laws, that's called justification. To justify someone is to declare them not guilty. Now, the opposite of justification is what? Condemnation. To condemn someone is to declare them guilty. Romans 8, 1 is one of the most phenomenal verses of freedom in all of Scripture. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there's no guilt When God justifies us, it means that we have no penalty to pay for our sins because Jesus already paid the penalty for our sins. And it also means by faith we have accepted it. Warren Wiersbe writes that justification is the act whereby, act of God. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. Let me give you several things about justification. Number one, justification occurs instantly. It's not a process. It's not gradual. It occurs all at once. At the instant the sinner believes by faith that Jesus died for their sins, God bangs the gavel down and says, Not guilty. You are not more or less justified any more than you are more or less pregnant. Either you is or you ain't. Right? If justification depended on our human effort, then someone might be more justified, someone might be less justified because your works or your performance varies. But since justification's an act of God, he's the one who says not guilty. That's the second point. Justification's an act of God, not of man romans eight twenty three says who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's you and I. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? <clears throat> now, we know that Satan will always accuse us before God, right? Satan's, right? Right now, Satan's in heaven accusing you and I. And he's got a lot to go on because you give him a lot of material. <laughs> I've given him a lot of material in the last 24 hours. I mean, a lot of material. You know, it's really interesting when you say, Lord, open my eyes and show me the ways in the last 24 hours that I have not honored you. He does. (laughs) And you're going, oh, I didn't want to know that much. I wanted to stay in denial for a little longer, right? You know. But so Satan will always accuse us before God. But God is the judge, and no one overrides His verdict. And when He says, not guilty, it doesn't mean you will never sin again. You will sin again, probably before nightfall. But it does mean you will never be guilty again, even though you do sin again. See, justification is more than forgiveness. Forgiveness is kind of like a pardon. You you know, you at the end of a, a political term, it's pretty common practice for governors or presidents to do what? Issue pardons. Now, a pardon is free forgiveness, but it's only free forgiveness for past sins, right? God goes beyond that. God not only forgives our past sins, he blots out the very record of our past sins. None of you will believe this, but when I was 16, I was involved in a car accident, and it was my fault, because as usual, I was driving really slow, (laughs) and I just lied to you. I was a brand new driver. I had driven 1,000 miles with my family up in north, and then of course, three miles from home, you get in a car wreck. right? That's what usually happens. So the judge, I went before the judge, believe it or not, back in the day you did that, and the judge decided to keep my infraction on the books for a period of time. And if my driving record remained clean, she said she would issue a pardon and wipe the offense off the books, just as if it never happened. When God declares you not guilty, you can never be declared guilty before God again, even though you will sin. Again, Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the person whose, God, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. See, when God declares you righteous, that's justification. He declares you righteous forever. He's erased all of your sin, your past <laughs> sin, your present sin, and your future sin. All at once. Your sin is not an entry in his accounting ledger anymore because he doesn't even remember your sins. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed your sins from you. Well, east and west are infinitely apart. There is no east and west end point. There's a north and south pole, but there's no east pole and west pole. He says, he puts them in the middle of the sea and puts up a no fishing sign. There is no record of your sins ever happened. The story is told of a man in England who put his Rolls-Royce on a boat and went across to the continent to go on holiday. While he was driving in his Rolls-Royce around Europe, something happened to the motor of his car. He cabled the Rolls-Royce people back in England and asked ''I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest I do?'' Well, the Rolls-Royce people flew a mechanic over to where he was. The mechanic repaired the car and flew back to England and left the man to continue his holiday. As you can imagine, the fellow was wondering, wonder how much this is going to cost me. So when he gets back to England, he writes a letter to the Rolls-Royce people and asks them how much he owed them. He received a letter from the Rolls-Royce office that read, Dear Sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls-Royce automobile. That's justification. Verse three. Point three: God justifies sinners, not people who claim they have no sin. See, God shows mercy on those who confess their crimes and throw themselves on the mercy of the judge. Don't tell God you haven't broken His laws. The world's full of people who tell God they haven't broken his laws. That's like telling the police officer, I didn't run that red light. They've only got you on videotape going through it 35 miles an hour. The evidence is pretty clear, right? See, God justifies the sinners who accept Jesus' payment for their crimes. And you've heard this. The Puritans came up with this. Justification is just as if I never sinned because there is no record of it. People who, of course, claim they have no sin will pay for it themselves because they've refused Christ's payment for their sin. And number four, God declares us to be righteous, not guilty, when we trust that Jesus took our sins and gave us His righteousness. See, God can, the, only reason, the only way God could declare us not guilty is because he's already declared Jesus guilty. God declares us just, not based on our righteousness, but based on Christ's righteousness. Sin, of course, has to be paid for in order for justice to be served. And we can't pay for sin ourselves, because if you paid for sin yourself, you wouldn't have a relationship with God because you would be separated from God for all eternity. No relationship. So God... Pays for our sins himself. It's like a judge in a court who imposes a fine on his own daughter for a traffic ticket. And then he comes down from his bench to stand with her, reaches into his wallet, and pays the fine himself. So justice is served and mercy is granted at the same time. Romans 5 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus died in my place for my sin, God put my guilt on Jesus and punished him for the crimes I committed. You know, way back several centuries ago, especially in 15th century, 16th century England, Kings were considered. You've heard of the divine right of kings? The divine right of kings. It means that the common person and king's royalty themselves accepted the fact that God appointed kings and that king's royalty were not accountable to anybody but God. So when a young royal prince committed an infraction, you were not allowed to whip or corporal punishment or spank or whatever you want to call it Uh, because no one could touch royalty. Even today, you're not supposed to lay hands on royalty, right? You're not supposed to touch them. So what they did when a royal prince committed an infraction, they had a whipping boy. And a whipping boy was punished in the presence of the prince for the wrongs the prince had committed. The whipping boy took the blows that were intended for the prince, but since you couldn't lay hands on the prince, this whipping boy took the punishment in his place. And I know some of you felt like when you were children, that was your designated role in the family, right? You got blamed for it all. So, Jesus, in this case, became our guilt. He became our sin. He paid the penalty for the crimes are committed. But what is remarkable is not only did Jesus take my guilt and my sin, God took Jesus' perfect righteousness and put that onto your and my account. Um, How many of you are are responsible to manage your finances? I'm not saying you're doing it. I'm just saying you're responsible (laughs) to do it. I'm not asking impossible questions, you know. Just because it's your job description doesn't mean you're getting it done. I, I understand that, right? So you all know that an asset is something you own and a a liability or a debt is something you owe, right? And you understand that an asset is desirable, right? And a liability is undesirable, right? So our sin is an infinitely huge debt that we owe God, that we can never repay. And Jesus' perfect righteousness is an infinitely precious debt. Asset, right? So when we respond to God by faith, Jesus not only pays our sin debt, Jesus credits our spiritual bank account with all of the riches that Jesus has, which is infinite. It's like going from bankruptcy to billionaire, right? From pauper to prince in an instant. Jesus has given us his righteousness and taken our sin. It's the greatest exchange in the world. So when God looks at you and I, He doesn't look at you as a sinner. He looks at you through the lens of Jesus' perfect righteousness, which is amazing. Years ago, Billy Graham was driving through a small southern town, and he was stopped by a policeman and charged with speeding. Graham admitted his guilt, but was told by the policeman that he would have to appear in court. The judge asked, guilty or not guilty? Graham pleaded guilty. The judge replied, that'll be $10. A dollar for every mile you went over the limit. This was back in the 50s or 40s, right? Suddenly, the judge recognized the famous minister. You have violated the law, he said. The fine must be paid, but I'm going to pay it for you. He took a $10 bill from his own pocket, attached to the ticket, and then he took Graham out and bought him a steak dinner. That, said Billy Graham, is how God treats repentant sinners. Amen? We serve a God of infinite mercy, infinite love, and Paul is just stunned that the Galatians would reject such grace. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is very direct He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Foolish is, of course, the opposite of wise, the opposite of wisdom. These folks are willfully, deliberately gullible, right? It's by choice. They know better. And Paul uses the word bewitched. He says, you're you're behaving like someone who's charmed, someone who's had a a spell or a hex cast on them. You you, you behave like you're someone who's fascinated to the point of being hypnotized. What is hypnotized into you into believing an obvious lie? Paul contrasts his methods of teaching with the Judaizers. He says, when I brought you the gospel, I publicly portrayed Jesus Christ to you as crucified. And the word publicly portrayed in the Greek means literally to write before. It means to to portray right in front of your eyes like a billboard or a public sign. Very obvious, very clear, very direct, very uh, open. So Paul presented Christ to the Judaizer, I mean to the to the Galatians in a very open and public and direct and truthful format. And he says these Judaizers are secretive, they're deceptive, they're hypnotic, they're, they're speculative, and they're lying to you. They're crawling through a broken window in at midnight, and I'm coming into the front door at high noon in front of God and everybody where we can all see this. I did not deceive you about the gospel message. I told you the central message of the gospel was Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the sins of the world. Now you need to understand the Jews despise the cross. Because only criminals were crucified on the cross. So it was a, anytime someone was crucified, you didn't talk about that in polite company. It was despicable. And so when Paul talked about Jesus Christ him crucified, it was the worst form of death and it was just socially, you would never mention it in polite company. Even today, people want to downplay the cross. They want to whitewash it. They want to talk about Jesus being a good teacher, a prophet, But the cross and dying, people don't want to deal with the cross because they don't want to deal with their sin. The cross was non-optional because it took the death of the infinitely precious Son of God to pay for our sin, which gives you some indication of how serious our sin problem was from God's point of view. Paul was always very direct about this. Verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you, not, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's the principle. We are not only saved by faith, we also live by faith. So these Galatians, these Galatian Christians, were saved by trusting Jesus Christ to forgive their sins, and at the very moment of salvation, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. At that instant, when Peter preached the gospel to the Gentiles through Cornelius, at the moment Cornelius and his household received Christ, by faith, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues as evidence to the Jews that they were in fact saved. It was a visible manifestation. There is no biblical evidence of a second filling of the Spirit. When you receive Christ as Savior, you get all of God right then. Romans 8 says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. If you're saved, you have The Holy Spirit. And Paul says that's prima facie evidence that you Galatians are saved. And by the way, you didn't get the Spirit because you were good people. You didn't get the Spirit because you earned the right. The Holy Spirit is a gift of God, part of the package of salvation. So what makes you think if you were saved by grace, that all of a sudden now you can live the Christian life by your own strength? He says, that's absolutely foolish. You're not going to mature in your Christian life based on your own hard work any more than you can come to Christ in the first place by your own hard work. Robert Deffenbaugh gives an example. How many of you have ever taken swimming lessons? (coughs) First time I was in the water, over my head, I was terrified. You know, feet on the the bottom of the pool, that's fine, but when you kind of get put out in deeper water... You're you're convinced you're going to die. You're going to drown, right? So you flail around, and you're trying to keep yourself afloat, and it's exhausting. And the more you flail about, the more exhausted you become. However, at the YMCA, they taught me something extremely important. They taught me that I couldn't keep myself above the water, but the water itself could keep me up. Because the first lesson in teaching a person how to swim... Is teaching them how to float. And for a guy like me, floating is not that easy. Right? There is no buoyancy in just bone. <laughs> it's a tough deal. Bone is denser than water, right? So the more we learn to relax and trust the security of the water in keeping us afloat, the more we Stop flailing, stop struggling, stop depending on ourselves. And of course, then we can learn how to actually learn various swimming strokes, the breaststroke, the crawl, etc., and we can move through the water. How foolish would it be once you've learned how to float and once you've learned that the water will keep you up to go back to flailing around, struggling, trying to stay on top of the water yourself. That's what Paul is telling in Galatians. You've been saved by grace. You've been given the Holy Spirit by grace. And now you want to abandon all the riches of God and go back to human effort, which didn't get you any of those riches in the first place. What kind of foolishness is that? And yet, this is the reality of many Christians today. How many Christians do you know come by faith to Jesus Christ? believe that he's paid the penalty for their sins, forgiven them, they have all the riches of God, and yet, when it comes time to live the Christian life, it all depends on me. What I gotta do, how much work I gotta put in, all the lists of the do's and the don'ts, and all the stuff I have to live up to. And it is exhausting. And it is frustrating. And many, many times we're living out somebody else's lists Of what we should be doing, as opposed to day by day saying, Lord, what is it you want me to do today? And if God wants you to do something that day, He will give you the strength to do it. He will never ask you to do something that He does not empower you to do. Why are we struggling to stay on top of the water when God's already taught us how to float? Which means depend on the Spirit. Ask him day by day, Lord, I don't have the capacity to do what you want me to do, but you do. There's no way that I can stand up here honestly and teach you. I'm not competent. You need to know that. None of us are adequate for what we're called to do. What God has called you to do in ministry, you're completely inadequate for. But our adequacy does not depend on us. Our adequacy is strictly dependent on Him. And you and I have the living God living inside of us. What more capacity do we want? Infinite God living inside us who will accomplish His will and His work if we will depend on Him and trust and obey. The greatest gift is the indwelling Holy Spirit. He gives us guidance. He gives us power. One of the reasons we keep trying in ourselves is because we believe that God is a stingy God. We believe that we have to do it because if we won't do it, God won't do it through us. We serve an incredibly generous God. We serve a God who is great. He's given us His Son's righteousness. He's given us His Holy Spirit. Everything you need, He's given. So we just need to trust Him. So Paul's now going to give them a historical example of someone who lived this way. Verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, Paul is going to use Abraham as the example of faith to these Galatian believers since he's the father of Judaism, right? He's promised that Abraham would have a son. God said, Abraham, you're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah, even though you're far beyond childhood age. God said, I want you to go outside and look at the stars in the sky. And the naked eye can see eh, maybe 3,000 stars. I don't know if you've ever counted them. Of course, down here, the air is so thick, you probably can't see um, very many stars because we don't breathe any air here that we can't see. But back in the day, <laughs> you could see a lot more stars at that point in time. And God says, you're going to have descendants that are going to be as greater than the stars in the sky. Furthermore, your descendants are going to be a blessing for the entire planet. Now, that is saying something to someone who doesn't even have a child yet because he's well beyond the age, and his wife is well beyond the age of childbearing. But it says in Genesis 15, 6, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, reckon is an accounting term. For those of you that like assets and liabilities, reckon is an accounting term. It's assigning assets and liabilities in columns. And when God made that promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed God, God put Abraham's faith in the asset column. And he said, this is credit to you. This is not a debt. This is a credit. This is an asset of righteousness in your column. Because everyone who comes to God must come like Abraham, by faith, not by works. By the way, Abraham's faith did not come easy. Romans 4 gives, gives me the best picture that I've seen about the struggle Abraham went through. Romans 4:18, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's the principle. Faith is acting according to God's promises, regardless of circumstances. Faith is acting according to God's promises, regardless of circumstances. Abraham believed that he and Sarah would have a son, despite the fact that he's 100 years old and she's 90. He believed it because God promised it, not because it was humanly possible. As a matter of fact, faith does not operate in the realm of the humanly possible. Faith begins where human capacity ends. Faith begins where human capacity ends, and that's a quote from George Mueller. George Mueller ran orphanages in England, and routinely they would have hundreds of children in these orphanages, and there would be no food in the pantry. None. And George Mueller never, ever told the public at large what he needed. He just prayed about it. And he could write in his diary dozens, even hundreds of times, there was no food, and they would pray. And before they got done, they'd hear the ox carts come up and there would be these ox carts of donations of food for breakfast over and over and over and over again. The story is told of Hudson Taylor who was sailing into China for missionary work back in the day when you sailed, right? And there was no wind. And the, and the, the tide was drifting the boat and toward the shore and there were pirates on the shore and the captain said, we need some wind, Hudson, could you pray? And Hudson said... Of course, but you have to lower the mainsail first. You have to raise the mainsail first. The captain said, why would I raise the mainsail? There's no wind. He said, raise the mainsail. Hudson prayed. Forty-five minutes later, the captain comes in and says, you can stop praying. we got more wind than we can handle. (laughs) We pray for rain. How many of you bring an umbrella? (laughs) Huh? I got convicted. We want rain. Really? Do we? How bad? You all start carrying umbrellas, you might start a conversation in this church. (laughs) Do we believe God? For what? And we're not talking a lot of faith here, right? I mean, this is not exactly the Sahara Desert. If you want to pray for rain and believe God, go for some place where it's never, ever rained. Like in the Chilean desert, the animal ran 136 years. That would be faith. Just saying. Paul is telling the Galatians that faith has always been the only way to come to God. So, what is faith? Faith is believing that what God has promised, He will do regardless of circumstances. And the issue is not the strength of your or my faith. The issue is the object of our faith. See, God makes promises to His people. And God is pleased when we trust him, when we rely on him. Faith is when you put the full weight on something. Your full weight, depending fully on the objects of your faith. You are all sitting in chairs. Somehow, I believe that you all have faith that that chair will support you. You know why? Because you sat down. If you didn't believe the chair would support you, you would not sit down. And when you trust God with your marriage, your children, your health, your eternal future, as Brother Ron said, your struggles in this life, you're putting your weight, your faith, your life based on the character and promises of God. And some of us in this room, some of you in this room, are struggling with things that have no human solution. You're operating way outside the area of human capacity. That's where faith begins. There are circumstances with your family, your children, your grandchildren, your health, your finances, your job. You name it. Your history, past Sins and guilt, whatever it happens to be, future doubts and anxieties, where there is no human solution. And God says, I know the plans that I have for you, Jeremiah 29, 11. Plans for welfare and not for capacity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you when you seek me and search for me with all your heart. So when you come to the end of yourself and your problems are beyond human capacity, that's where faith begins and you have to say, are the promises of God real? When I don't have a solution to how my children are behaving, is God in charge of my children or my grandchildren or my health? And you may have a diagnosis that says, if Jesus doesn't fix this thing, I'm going to heaven. Well, that would not be a consolation prize. That would be the main event, right? So we always have choice. Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. See, our problem with faith in our circumstances, when we come to God and our circumstances are impossible, we have an agenda about how we want God to deal with it, don't we? We say, God, here's the solution that I would like you to supernaturally implement. Thank you very much. Just let me know. I, I've got the plan. You just need to make it happen. Well, God has the plan. And he will make his plan happen. Your job is simply, do I believe him? Am I going to trust him to accomplish his plan? Because his plan for me is better than my plan for How we live reveals what we have faith in. Would you agree with that statement? How we live reveals our trust. Jesus promised near the very end of the Bible, I got convicted about this last night. I was done with this lesson. I really wanted to be done with this lesson. You know, there comes a point where it's like, Lord, ah, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. And the Holy Spirit is very, very faithful and He just brings this verse to mind. If you, ever, if you ever struggle with something and the Holy Spirit brings a scripture to mind, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. If you're struggling with something and, the, and a scripture comes to mind, that's God. Revelation 22, right near the very end of the Bible. This is a promise from Jesus Christ himself. He says, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And the question is, do I believe that? Do I believe that promise? Oh, sure. God said it. Jesus said it. Of course they do. So if we have faith that God means that promise, have I adjusted my priorities? And am I living in light of the fact that when he said I am coming quickly, that could mean today. Let me tell you, most American Christians are not believing that promise because when you look at their schedule and their life, it does not reflect faith in that promise. So one of the ways you evaluate what you have faith in is evaluate your your priorities. Evaluate your schedule, evaluate where your time and your money goes, and that will reveal. If I believe that Jesus is coming soon and that it rewards faithful living, what should change in my life? What should change in my priorities? Because how we live reveals what we believe. Carry an umbrella with you. Verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So Paul says, law and faith are mutually exclusive. Faith and works do not commingle any more than oil and water. Paul says, if God is going to declare you not guilty, If God is going to justify you based on your works, here's the standard. You have to keep every one of God's laws 24-7, 365 the rest of your life, no exceptions. No vacations, no breaks, no coffee breaks, no lunch breaks, 24-7, 365 perfectly. Now, no human being except Jesus Christ can do this. So our ability to please God by perfectly keeping laws and non-starter because none of us can do it. That's why none of us are justified by the law. And that's why we come by faith. Because Jesus Christ did keep the law perfectly. He earned the righteousness that perfection demanded, and therefore the righteousness that he earned by living a perfect life was given to us as a gift. And we just have to receive it. The problem why faith is so difficult for people is because it requires humility. We have to come to God and say, I, 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 don't, I'm not, I don't have it. I have not kept the law. I am a sinner. I am in need of a Savior. Many, many people believe that they keep the law. They say, well, I've not murdered anybody. I've not committed adultery. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 hang on. If you've, if you've been angry with your brother in your heart, if you've lusted for someone in your heart, You've broken the law. So you not only have to keep the law behaviorally, you have to keep the law in your thought life. You can never sin in your thought life. And yet, we all do, all the time, every day. That's why 1 John nine is so important. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So because we're unable to keep the law, God kept it for us through Jesus Christ. And by faith, all we need to do is receive that forgiveness and be reconciled to God. At that point, God bangs the gavel down and says, In my sight, you are just. In my sight, I do not see any sin now or ever. I only see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I see you through the lens of my son. And our privilege is to go and tell people who are lost that they can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Amazing. Amazing. Let's review. Number one, God declares us right in His sight when we believe and receive Jesus' payment for our sins. Justification, of course, is when God says not guilty, and that occurs instantly because justification is an act of God, not man. God justifies sinners, not people who claim they have no sin. God declares us to be righteous when we trust that Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. We are wealthy beyond comprehension. We are not only saved by faith, we also live by faith. That's probably relevant to us because most of us in this room are are saved. We know Jesus. It's a question of day by day by day living out that life by faith in him and not trusting in ourselves. And the big one uh, for our faith standpoint is the last one. Faith is acting according to God's promises regardless of circumstances. And the reason we can say confidently what we say is because who is master of your circumstances? Who is master of your circumstances? God is master of your circumstances. So he has arranged them to accomplish his purposes. That's why you can take his promises to the bank. Okay. Love you guys. Read ahead, Lord willing. We'll be uh, continuing in Galatians for at least another six weeks. Now that you know, do.